Philippian church have a lot to teach us. So to answer your question, I have to take you into the rich world of Philippi. So if the mere mention of Philippi brings back memories of sitting in a high school English class, reading Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, well, then you're mind-melding with me right now. Because, yes, it's that Philippi, where Octavian and Antony defeated the armies of Cassius and Brutus after Cassius and Brutus carried out their plot to assassinate Julius Caesar. Which means that when I asked my teacher why I'd ever have to learn this information, well, this is why. After Octavian and Antony won the decisive victory, it was clear that they were going to rise to power. But they thought returning to Rome with legions upon legions of soldiers would be a bit of a bad look. So they garrisoned a good many of them right where the battle had taken place. Now, to give you a sense of place, here is Philippi on a map. As you can see, we are in Greece. Which means that Philippi took on a very, some very unique and interesting characteristics because we're talking about a lot of Roman soldiers garrisoned in a Greek city. Philippi was located near the port city of Neapolis and was located on very fertile land that could produce grain and wine. So the area had always been inhabited, but it was small village, small village, small village. Then Philip II of Macedon, I believe he was one of Alexander the Great's sons, but don't quote me on that just yet, um, founded a city on top of a ruined village and named it after himself. The city came under Roman rule in the second century before Christ, and then population exploded about 42 BC after the Battle of Philippi between Octavian Antony and Cassius and Brutus, well documented by the bard himself, who lived like 1,600 years later. By the first century CE, when Paul is writing, approximately 10,000 people lived in Philippi. Because of this complex history, there were a number of people groups all living in this one area. In the rural areas outside the city, you had the native Thracians, most of the population of Philippi were Greeks, but the ruling class were Italian-born Romans. The government was modeled after that of Rome, the official language was Latin, and citizens of the colony were citizens of the Roman Empire. The culture of the city would have been entirely Roman, and the city was loyal to Rome. Lastly, and most importantly, the cult of the emperor would have carried a great deal of weight. While such a diverse mix of people would ensure that there were a variety of religions and cults, the official religion of the ruling class would have been worship of the emperor. Another unique feature that comes out in Paul's writing is the makeup of the church to whom Paul writes. We would expect there to be very little Jewish presence in, in Philippi and in the church, and Paul's writing confirms this hypothesis. So the vast majority of Paul's converts at Philippi are Gentiles. Paul uses the Latin form of their name in his goodbye, but mentions people with Roman names like Clement and Greek names like Euodia. What this means for our study is that we are not going to see long discussions of the law or of circumcision. 
which should be taken as good news. I don't have to talk about circumcision for eight weeks. Um, like we see in Galatians. But we will talk about things like where our citizenship is and who is Lord. Because those categories were of great cultural importance to Greeks and Romans living in Philippi. These are terms from the Philippian Roman culture that Paul is going to use to make theological claims. But back to the question, why are we going to spend eight weeks going verse by verse through this book? I think the context of Philippi and our context now are similar enough to be helpful and instructive for our own faith journeys. Philippian Christians were living countercultural lives, and they knew it. They know, <clears throat> sorry, they knew that they were in the cultural minority. Increasingly for us, living an authentic Christian lifestyle is becoming countercultural. Gone are the days when culture reflected the values we hold as Christians or made our lifestyle easy or convenient. Philippian Christians faced hostility and persecution for their beliefs. While we are not necessarily beaten or killed or jailed for our beliefs, an authentic witness in our current day and age does require sacrifice. What would it look like to have your child in soccer but to say we are not going to play on Sundays? What would it cost you if you told your boss that you couldn't work on weekends or you couldn't work late on Tuesday night because you had to be at your small group? As Christians living in 2016, we are having to learn what it means to make unpopular, countercultural choices in the name of living out our faith. We are having to learn, as American Christians really haven't in previous generations, how to face marginalization, how to live as a cultural minority how to have joy in the face of derision. And I think the Philippian church can help us learn how to do that. One last thing before we get to the bulk of the letter itself, and that is the claim that Paul will make in this letter that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is what we believe as Christians. It's what we hold fast to. It's the foundation of our faith. But the slogan, Jesus Christ is Lord, is very similar to another slogan that the people of Philippi would have been quite familiar with. Caesar is Lord. That was the foundation of the emperor cult. It was written on buildings. It was written on coins. It was all over the place in Roman cities like Philippi. Paul and the early Christians, however, turned it around and said that Jesus is Lord. But what I want to make clear right from the start is that when Paul and the early Christians did this, they were making a very clear an outrageous and scandalous claim about Caesar. Because if Jesus Christ is Lord, Caesar is not. And, the claim, and this claim got Paul and the Christians at Philippi harassed, jailed, and persecuted. We have our own Caesars in 2016. We have our own things that culture and society declare to be Lord. Success, money, fame, power. You have to work 80-hour weeks so that you can become successful and provide a stable future for your family. You have to have this position in the community. Your kid has to be on this team. You have to be involved with this, that, or the other. And our culture and our society tell us that Jesus is less and less and less important. But remember this. If Jesus Christ is Lord, then all of those other things that society makes Lord aren't. 
Paul is writing this letter from prison to a community that is persecuted and harassed because they say that Jesus Christ is Lord and Caesar isn't. The content of this letter gives us the tools we need to make the same claim. So let's get to it, shall we? Starting with verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's the section we're going to be dealing with today, but as promised, we're going to take it verse by verse, or a couple verses by a couple verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of the letter. It's the salutation. And normally this would be something we gloss over in our daily study because all letters have to have a salutation, right? Well, that might be the type of biblical insight you get other places, but here we try harder. That was a bit of a joke. Maybe not a good one. So this is what we can learn about this particular salutation. Typically in the ancient world, the greeting of a letter would say, Matt to Paul, greetings. Paul changes this formula here in a small but telling way. Paul does say his name, it's really helpful, but then adds, servants of Christ Jesus. And instead of saying, to all in Philippi, he says, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi. And instead of saying greetings, he says, grace and peace to you from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is grounding each part of a normal salutation, in a normal, each part of the greeting, in Jesus Christ. This points to the transformation that is brought on by the gospel. Every part of human life is different in light of being a servant and a follower of Jesus Christ. Even an epistolary greeting, the most minute of details, ought to be changed to show that our grounding is not in our own beings, but in the being of Christ. I think that's a key for us if we are to live our lives as servants of Christ in a culture that is largely indifferent to Christ. We have to understand that anything and everything is transformed by the gospel, all of life, even the mundane things that we might gloss over, like the beginning of a letter. All of it is transformed by Christ. 
Because if we change the way that we start letters or emails or text messages because of who Jesus is for us, then it becomes a no-brainer to change the big parts of our life because of who Jesus is for us. What parts of your life still need to be transformed by the gospel? Are they mundane or are they big? How could you change them to be conformed to the gospel? How could they be grounded in the being of Christ? And what would you have to give up in order to make that possible? Verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you. The next thing that comes in Paul's letter is a thanksgiving. This happens in every letter Paul writes except for one, and that one letter that has no thanksgiving is Galatians. Spoiler alert, he was mad at the Galatians. But even by Paul's standards, this thanksgiving is very effusive. I thank my God every time I remember you. I think part of this is because of their shared context. Paul writes this in prison. Paul writes this to a church that is regularly harassed because of their living out the gospel. I think their shared suffering has created a bond between Paul and the Philippian church that is unique to all the other relationships he has with the churches he founded. I just asked you what part of your life needs to be transformed and conformed to the gospel and what it would cost to make that happen. But the other side to that sacrifice is the bond that is formed in the church when we all make sacrifices together. There is a bond formed through mutual sacrifice that is unlike anything else. Which leads me to ask this. Is there anyone in your life for whom you thank God every time you remember them? If so, I want, to pick, I want you to picture that person. What created that relationship? If you can't picture anyone, I want you to think about how beautiful that would be. To have someone that every time they came to mind, you said a prayer of thanksgiving to God because of them. That's friendship. How could you get that into your life? Verse 4, <clears throat> in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. In verse four, verses 4 and 5, we get confirmation that this bond of Paul to the Philippians is based on their common work in the gospel, and what's implied there is their common suffering caused by that work. But verse 6 is what I love about this particular section of the letter. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. You see, in our lives as Christians, we will face hardships. In our lives, Christian or not, we will face hardships. In our life together as a church, we will face hardships. This Sunday a year ago was my first Sunday here at Spirit Life. And while I know that a great many of you have come to like me or to tolerate me, I know that my presence here is a disruption to the direction this church was going in. A lot of things have changed over the last 15 months. Some for the better. We are now reaching more people in more communities for Jesus Christ, which is a wonderful fact of the good work that God is doing here. But I also know that some of you have made friends and built relationships here in this church, and those friends now go to churches that aren't this one. That's not lost on me, and I know that it's not a positive development in your life. 
but I am confident of this. He who began the good work among the people called Spirit and Life will bring it to completion. He who began the good work among the people called Spirit and Life will bring it to completion. He who began the good work among the people called Spirit and Life will bring it to completion. Now beyond that, I'm sure in your personal faith journeys you have faced hardships. Some of these are brought on by life. Some of these are brought on when we have days where we feel like we aren't where we should be spiritually. Have you ever felt a day where you just didn't feel it? Maybe prayer felt like work. Maybe you wanted to skip Bible study. You just didn't want to do it. And then you felt guilty, so guilty afterwards. Or when you weren't as patient or as loving or as kind as you should have been. It's easy to get down on ourselves. But I am confident of this. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. God will see us through. We will get to where we need to get to. Verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel. All of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how long I how I, sorry, God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul says that the members of the Philippian church share in God's grace with him. Another way of rendering this passage is that they are partners in grace. Being a partner in ministry, a partner in grace is a big deal for Paul. It again forms the basis of this close, intimate bond that he feels with the Philippian church. Who is your partner in grace? Who is your partner in ministry? Who are you sharing this journey with? If you're not sharing it with anyone, then first you're missing out on an incredible relationship. And second, it will be much harder to face the derision and marginalization that comes from being an authentic Christian in today's culture. Verse 9. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul's introduction ends, as it usually does in his letters, with a prayer for the congregation reading this. Yet his prayer is interesting. Paul's prayer is that they grow in love. What isn't said, but I think for Paul is always implied, is that the love they are growing in is the love of God in Jesus Christ. Paul's prayer, and really the first 11 verses of this letter, betray an amazing confidence in God. Paul is confident that if the members of the Philippian church grow in their love of God, their moral and ethical foundation will improve. Their actions will be more just. They will bear the fruit of righteousness. How do you think that the love of God is connected to Christian moral discernment? How is it connected in your life? Paul prays that the Philippians may be filled to overflowing with the fruit of righteousness. That can also be translated as right living. Here it emphasizes the behavior which results from both God's faithfulness and the status of being forgiven family members. What are some of the fruits of right living? What are some of the fruits of right living manifesting in your life? 
Lastly, at every stage of the process, when people first hear the gospel, when they believe it, when they begin to live by it, and when they make that progress in faith and love, nothing is done to the glory of the people concerned as though we would be able to do it on our merits alone. Everything is done, as Paul insists here, through Christ Jesus, to God's own glory and praise. My hope and prayer is that as we continue this study, that can happen in us here and now. Let us pray. Almighty and all-loving God, we come here to this place, this hour that used to be set apart in our culture, but for us is still set apart. We come while increasing numbers of our friends and neighbors can find other things to do on Sunday mornings. We continue to choose to come to this place. But God, we know that living an authentic Christian life, living out our faith today is a lot harder than it was a while back. We need your help, God. We need the love that is in Christ Jesus to abound in us so that we might bear the fruit of righteousness. Help us to learn from the Philippian church. Help us to learn from the martyrs and the witnesses of the early church on what it is to live a faithful life in the face of an indifferent culture. And God, if there is any in here who wants to, for the very first time, make a choice to follow you, God, we pray a special portion of your grace upon that person, that they might say yes, and they might choose to live the different kind of life, the true kind of life, made possible by your love and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.